Let's pray as we begin our time in the Word together. Lord, we've just sung to you. We've echoed our praises in this room, the very prayer that we have come to ask. God, would you, would you speak through your Word? Would you, would you build your church and let the earth be filled with your glory? God, would you shape and fashion us to your likeness, Lord? Would you grow us up in your goodness? As we turn our attention now to your, your scriptures, Lord, your truth, we pray, Lord, that you would guard us from error and guide us in your holy truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in life and in faith, expectations matter. They matter in marriage, certainly. Expectations matter in work or, or in the schoolyard. They matter in virtually every arena of our lives. And our Christian walk is certainly no exception. What you believe will happen, what you anticipate or what you expect from this relationship that you have with the living God can either set you up for success in life and faith, if your expectations are grounded to truth, if they're grounded to, to Scripture, or your expectations can set you up for some serious disappointment. So, for instance, if you believe that by coming to God, He's going to fix all your problems, if you believe that by coming to God, he's going to, to bless you financially. He's duty-bound to do so because he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And by the way, you sent, you sent your seed in the mail to that, uh, that preacher on TV. If you believe that by coming to God, he will always heal you. And my friend, you are in store for some very serious disappointment. Because although God is good, although we reap tremendous eternal blessings from our relationship from, uh, with Him, although He can and often does provide and bless His people, uh, and, and although we see God heal the body, His name is Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh Rapha, the one who heals. He doesn't always choose to do so on this side of heaven. And the sovereign God of heaven and earth gets to decide. Expectations are very important in life and in faith. I'll give you just a, a simple idea, excuse me, a simple example to drive this principle home. Uh, and I, an example from the world of air travel. Most of us have flown before. Stick up your hand if you've been on an airplane. Yeah, that's, that's most of us. And, and some of you love it. Some of us, not so much. So I have a confession to make. I am a total wimp in the air. Something about being like 35,000 uh, 35, feet in the air in like a big metal tube where I'm not in control at all sort of shakes my nerves. And so I can fly. I do fly. I just don't enjoy it. And you know what really rattles my cage as I'm up in the air, praying the whole time that the Lord would, would save and preserve me and, and that I could feel the ground again beneath my feet? I, I, uh, 
when I encounter, not if, but often, you know, if you fly, this, this is like a normal occurrence, when you encounter uh, turbulation. Did I say that right? Tribulation, that's in here. Turbulence, thank you. When, <laughs> turbulation, and I quote. You're never going to let me forget that, are you? What is he talking about? Turbulence, thank you. I promise you, every single bump on that airplane ride, I'm just like, I'm dead. This is it, right? Every, every single time I feel something, like, it's going down. And so I'm trying to, like, keep it together on the outside so people aren't, like, freaked out around me. But I'm just a total wimp in the air. You know what helps me, though? This actually helps. When you hear the pilot click on the intercom and say something like, Hey, folks. We're going to encounter some rough air. We're going to be flying through it. We just want to let you know it's coming. We know it's there. We're going to be fine. And so we've adjusted our course or we're, we're, we're doing something different. Uh, just knowing in advance that it's coming, that the pilot is aware, and that he or she has planned accordingly helps to soothe my nervous little soul. Expectations can make all the difference. Right? I, I've read all the statistics. I, I know that it's safer to fly than it is to drive. It didn't, didn't help any. But, but managing my expectations and knowing that when I'm flying, there's just going to be times when you move through some rough air, you move through some turbulence, is helpful to me. You know, if you think about it in terms of our Christian faith, the same can be true. Aren't you thankful that your Savior, Jesus, your eternal captain, has said to you and me in faith, this is John 16, in this world, you're going to have some turbulence. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I don't know about you, but that helps me to level set. Because Jesus talking to all his disciples about not the possibility, but the certainty of turbulence in life, of tribulation, and, and his ultimate victory through it all. Helps to calm my shaky soul through the ups and downs of our experience here, not just in the air. What's, what's my point? Here's, here's my point. One of the problems, friends, that results from not reading our Bibles or from only cherry-picking the parts of the Bibles that we really enjoy, our Bibles that we really enjoy is that we begin to develop what I'll call unrealistic expectations when it comes to following Jesus. What is it about faith that makes us so tempted to believe that if we're sincere and if we're following Jesus, it's going to be smooth sailing. If He's in it, it's going to be a blessing. If He's in it, there's going to be no place more safe, no place more comfortable. I'm going to have complete peace if he's in it. Yeah, show me that verse. 
in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, friend. In the midst of the turbulence, He's with you. His name, after all, is Emmanuel. And He has overcome the world. It's your Savior, by the way, who says to you in the Gospel of Matthew that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. I'm sorry if I burst your bubble. <laughs> this is early August morning. But there's a point for us speaking this way. We're continuing this morning in our sermon series where we are asking the question over and over and over again, how can we be faithful as the people of God as we gather to worship? Specifically, how does this, how does Scripture shape our singing? And we're, we're tackling many different dimensions of our praise. And, and we've seen that Scripture tells us over and over and over again many different things about our praise. Today's question is, how do I sing through turbulence? How do I sing when life is unfair, when it's painful, when I can't figure out a way forward? Some of you may have been saying this already as we've been talking about how, how Scripture shapes our singing. You've, you've had this internal objection. You've been very polite, but you've been thinking inside yet. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not down for singing right now, Zeb, actually. If you just knew what I was going through, you'd know that this is no time for singing in my life. My, uh, my response, as graciously as I can muster it, is this. Dear friend, have you read the songs in here? Have you? There's a lot of them. And I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of Scripture, and we'll give some examples today, that faithful music is not always happy music. Let's, let's look into Scripture. I'm going to give you a few examples today of what we will call songs of lament. And friends, they are everywhere in Scripture. Songs of lament. We'll, we'll hit some general examples, and then we're going to camp out on one in particular. I just want you to see that these sad songs, too, are inspired by God to, to teach, to sharpen, to encourage, and equip the saints of God. Exhibit A, the book of Habakkuk. Now, I've I've got a reference up there, and you can go chase this. I'll, I'll read it for you. You don't need to flip there. We're, we're going to spend most of our time in the Psalms. But if you've read the book of Habakkuk, you know there's a whole lot of pain going on. There's a lot of questions. Habakkuk the prophet is wounded at a soul level as he seeks to wrestle through the pain and sin and disappointment that just brackets him from every angle. And after receiving some very, very bad news from God, or how he receives his bad news, here is Habakkuk's eventual response. This is how the book of Habakkuk ends. Let me read it to you. Habakkuk three seventeen to 19 
Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. It's a bad day. No food, no flock, no means of providing for yourself. That's a bad day. What's Habakkuk's response? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord. God Yahweh is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then there's a little note down at the bottom. At the end of the book of Habakkuk. It says this. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Translation. Habakkuk is singing this. Can you imagine that song? Think about what he said. Though, I don't know where my next meal's gonna come from. Though, though we're poor and destitute and afflicted in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the turbulence. God, I'll still sing. I'll still praise You. You'll still be my joy. You'll still be my strength and my song. Friends, not all faithful songs are happy songs. I'll give you one more generic example or general example. Maybe that's a better term from the Psalms. By the way, you've read them, right? Like the biggest book in, in the Bible, the longest book. 150 Holy Spirit-inspired songs. The Psalms are the songbook of God's people, Israel. These are the songs Jesus would have been singing. And if you've ever spent time flipping through this songbook of the Psalms, and if you've read it honestly, with eyes open, what you'll see is there's quite a few sad songs. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, I'm going to give you this statistic, over one-third of the psalms are considered psalms of lament. One-third. That's, that's a lot. In other words, part of what God intended to give to His people to sing their way to right living and and to glorify Him was songs of praise and joy. There's a whole lot of those. But a third of them are songs of lament. Sad songs. i just give you a taste from Psalm 13. You don't need to flip there. Unless you want to, you can jot this down. But Psalm 13, I'm going to give you the bookends. Here's the beginning of Psalm 13, how it starts. This is written by King David now. And then I'll give you the end. Here's how David begins. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, no less. How long, O Lord? Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
man after God's own heart. And what's he singing? What's his heart cry? Well, he just keeps repeating. How long, God? You ever ask that question? I have. It's a faithful question. It's right here. God, how, how long is this going to continue? We just got back from a, a short road trip. We were at, out at uh, Lancaster at Sight and Sound Theater this weekend. And so I'm very uh, familiar with our brood of children. The, the question, how long? <laughs> I was thinking about it as I was preparing for this message. It's almost like how long, oh Lord, is the theological equivalent of are we there yet? How long do I have to stay buckled in this seat, in this harness, right? My, my four-year-old struggling. I remember asking that question. And God's people ask it as they navigate through a dark and difficult world. God, I don't know how much longer I can take. How long? Ask King David. Sings. King David. But see how see how this song of lament, which is what Psalm 13 is, how, how it ends. The, the same psalmist, the same follower of the one true God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, who began the psalm with, how long, God, ends it this way. Verse, verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Question, what do you think happened between the beginning of that song as David was writing it and the end of that song that fixed his problem? Nothing. It's not like he started penning Psalm 13 and then a, a, a messenger interrupted him and said, hey, I've got great news. Everything's fixed. No. No. The same guy with the same problems who began his song with help. Are we there yet? I can't take anymore, God. Ends his song with God's dealt bountifully with me. His problem, whatever it was, is still there. Are you tracking? Why? How is David singing? Well, because in view of God's greater grace and goodness in his life, he's able to sing to his soul. It ends well for me. We say that often around here. I think we need these reminders. Do you know it? In, in Christ, regardless of how hard things are right now, friend, it ends very well for you he has dealt i hope this is encouraging to you today if you're struggling through physical ailments or relational issues or work stuff it ends well for you in jesus he has dealt bountifully with you so as you sing and you ought to sing from time to time god how long you still sing. You sing the sad songs along with the happy ones.
That's, that's faithful, friends. That's faithful. When we sing, we are not dependent upon our circumstances. Yes, we should sing because we're happy in Christ. And we must also sing, here's my driving point. I'm going to keep beating this horse till it's dead. We must also sing when we're sad, when we're broken. Listen, when we're disappointed, when we're tired. The world is not as it should be. Sin has fractured us in our planet. And songs of lament, listen now, These songs of lament are given to us by God to teach us, to remind us, and to reinforce that biblical singing is not just a happy veneer of a melody slapped over a sad life. No, songs of lament force us to lean into our sadness to process through it, to run our grief through the lens of Scripture and to find hope in our rock, the Lord. So, you got the point? We sing, God's people sing in His Word, in life, in experience, sad songs and happy songs for His glory. We bring what we have to Him. So for the remainder of our time here this morning, I'd simply like us just to dig together into one of these songs of lament. Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. This is where we're going to be camping out for the balance of our time. This is... This is a great example in Scripture of a song of lament. Psalm 77. Now, this psalm, like many, begins with what we call a superscription. There's there's a title or some notes before you get into the actual song about how it was put together and how it's meant to be arranged. Remember, these are songs now. Psalm 77 begins this way, to the choir master, they're singing this, according to Jeduthun. Now, Jeduthun was a musical uh, guy. He was one of the chief musicians appointed by King David. And so, so they're singing this song according to him, either for his special choir, or maybe he had a special style, uh, a genre of music. Do it Jeduthun's way, is what they're saying. And then we get the author. This is a psalm of Asaph. So Asaph writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as he begins Psalm 77, I think you'll see that he does it with a bleeding heart. I want you to note his tone as we begin to read. It's urgent, even desperate. Let's begin. Psalm 77. This is the word of the Lord. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, 
I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Now, that word, we see it often in the Psalms. Selah or, or Selah is, uh, is, is actually a term that is somewhat debated. We're not 100% sure we know what it means, although most uh, conservative biblical commentators believe that the word means something like to pause or to stop and reflect, to consider what has just been said. So let's, let's take our instructions from Scripture and do that. Let's, let's take a Selah moment, and I'd like you to do something. Look, look, at, look at your Bibles with me. I hope they're open in your lap or on your device. Psalm 77. I want you to take note in these first three verses of all the verbs. All the action words. Think about with me here what the psalmist is actually doing. Well, he's crying aloud. He's seeking. He's stretching out untiring hands. He's moaning. He's meditating, but it's making him faint. He's fainting. Side point, just an asterisk, but I think this one's worth making. Stretching out one's hands is actually a common and biblical posture for prayer. You've been to some worship services, haven't you? With the hands all raised and some of you are like, yes. And some of you are like, weird. <laughs> However you're wired, whatever your personal preferences are, we just want to think biblically here for a moment. Stretching out your hands to God is a biblical posture. More than we see it in response to singing, we see it often in response to prayer. It's, a, it's an expression of dependence. We see it here in Psalm 77. We see it in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.8. I can give you these references later if you want. We see it in Psalm 88 verse 9. We see it in Psalm 143 verse 6. Stretching out your hands to God. You're not commanded to do that. But it's, it's a good thing if you're doing it with a heart of dependence. If you're doing it with a, as a gesture of solidarity to God. God, I need you. Like a baby, right? Our, our little Addie Grace, who we're, we're fostering, is about nine months old now. And she's just getting to that point where she's starting to lift up her hands a little bit when you walk by. It's beautiful. The psalmist stretches out hands untiring to the Lord. There's a lot going on here in these opening verses. Here's the bottom line. We don't know. Asaph doesn't tell us exactly what he's going through here. But it is certainly no walk in the park. Would you agree? Let's pick it back up. Verse 4. He continues. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. You been there? Eyelids that don't close. That's sleeplessness. Mind churning. You're, you're so troubled that you're at a loss for words. That's speechlessness. Come on now, you've been there, many of you, where you're almost 
numb to the pain. The the disappointment or the strife or the physical pain perhaps has been so great for so long, so protracted that you feel hollow, empty. Can't talk, can't sleep. Asaph continues in verse 5. I consider the days of old, the, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. What's he saying? He's saying, I thought of the past and how it was better. This is a dangerous exercise, by the way. The good old days. I look back and it, start to make, it started to make me question. Now buckle up here. Because Asaph's about to unleash a series of six questions. And they are serious. Look at verse 7. We're going to read 7 to 9. Six questions. Rapid fire. This is in the Bible. I want you to just let it sink in. He begins to reflect. Here's his diligent search. It leads to these questions. Verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Whoa. This is just going to remind. This is the Bible we're reading. What questions is the psalmist asking in the Bible? Well, he's struggling with God's ostensible silence. And listen, listen look, just look at verse 8. Just look, look at the questions in verse 8 alone. Has God's steadfast love forever ceased? We talked about that steadfast love last week. That's the Hebrew word hesed. It means His loving kindness, His, his faithful love, His loyal love. It's his, it's his covenant loyalty to His people. Has the thing that defines God's relationship to His people, His steadfast love, Ceased forever? I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable if I'm talking to God right now. Mr. Asaph, shouldn't you know the answer to that question? Are his promises, he continues, over? Are they at an end for all time? Friends, these are big, big questions. And Asaph is not afraid to ask them. In fact, he even prompts us to dwell there for a moment. Selah. Sit on that. Hold on to that pain for a moment. Don't dismiss it. It's real. It hurts. So, we're going to continue, but before we do, I think it's appropriate that we, as we sometimes say, come up for air for a moment. It's one thing for us to sit comfortably in our chairs here in an air-conditioned room on Sunday morning. 
reading about Asaph's pain. Reading about Asaph's questions. But here I think in this Selah moment, the Lord invites us to consider our own experience. I want to, I want to invite you to do that here, here and now. Just take a moment and think about some of your own questions. What is it for you that's causing such sand between the sheets? Is it that broken relationship? Or perhaps no relationship at all? Is it the job? Your depression? Is it that sin that, that just won't seem to let you go? Friends, we've all got the same skin that Asaph had. And if you're honest, and I hope you're honest, before the Lord, you've felt some of the questions he's been asking. You've, you've been able to nod your head and, and to say, I know what he's feeling. When, you, when we read a moment ago, David, cry out to the Lord, how long, God? How long? When you would even come to the place where you would look up in the midst of your mess and say, I'm not even sure I can see your love anymore, God. I don't even know if those promises you made are worth a thing. Now careful, they are. And he's going to affirm that they are. But we're not trying to dismiss the depth of the hurt, the ubiquitous, universal experience of pain, of loss, of trouble. Remember Jesus, in this world, you're going to pass through this stuff. You will have trouble. It's a, it's a matter of when, not if, isn't it? You're either working through it now, or it's coming, unless Jesus does first. In the middle of this Selah moment, we see Asaph swirling in his pain. And then we reach verse 10. And if you're a note-taking kind of person in your Bible, I want to encourage you to put a star, circle, get out your highlighter, and mark up verse 10. Verse 10 is a very big deal in Psalm 77. This is a major pivot in Asaph's thinking. In his, in his song. Here's the thing. It's a beautiful thing. Although Asaph implores, invites God's people not to dismiss their pain. That's what we've been working through in verses 1 to 9. He also models for us that we don't stay there. The psalmist here, Asaph here, does something in verse 10 that changes everything and begins to move him from a place of despair to a place of hope. Look at verse 10 with me. There's some different uh, translation philosophies here in verse 10, but just I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. We can chat Hebrew later if you want to. Uh, Psalm 77, verse 10. Then I said, Asaph writes, I will appeal to this. In the midst of his pain, 
in the midst of his heartache, he's about to make an appeal. What are you, what are you appealing to, Asaph? He continues, I'm going to appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Come again? Do you talk like that? I don't usually talk like that. Asaph, in the middle of his pain, makes an appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. This is, a, this is chock full. This is a loaded phrase. The, 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 let's take them one at a time here. The, the years of God's hand. What, what do you think he's talking about? How many years does God's hand have? All of them. <laughs> All the years, right? This is Asaph thinking about beginning to appeal to God's relationship with time. It's an expression. God's years is an expression of his eternality. And then he also is talking about the hand itself, right? Not just the years of the hand. He, he's saying, God, you're eternal. You've always been. And then, and then he's appealing to the right hand itself. What is the right hand? Well, the right hand was a symbol in Bible times for power. For strength. So, so what's he saying? Asaph says, in the middle of his mess, in the middle of his pain, in the middle of his questions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appeal to something outside of myself. I'm going to stop for a moment, and I'm going to consider God's years, God's eternality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider God's power, his strong right hand. When taken together, the psalmist is running to the unshakable, eternal, unending power of God. Let me bottom line it for you. Where does Asaph go when he is swirling? When he's caught up in turbulence? When he's overcome with doubt and questions? He runs to God's character. You listening? He thinks beyond his circumstances, beyond his pain, and he starts to meditate on the character, the power, the unending goodness and strength of God's nature. And then he goes on. Check this out. For the rest of the entire psalm, He's been complaining a little bit up to now, wouldn't you agree? And for good reason. Whatever he's going through is tough. But then, once he begins to meditate on the character of God, to get, as it were, beyond himself and his circumstance, he never returns. We're going to see for the rest of the psalm, he goes on to cite ex specific examples that are reminders to him. And I want you to note how he's in a very different place at the end than he is at the beginning. He says in verse 12, I, I will remember your deeds and ponder all your works. I'm going to meditate on your mighty deeds. He just starts reciting example after an example of God's goodness in his life. Let's just read it together. We're going to take the rest of the psalm. We'll, we'll bite off the rest and try to digest it here. Pick it up in verse 11. 
And uh, we'll read to the close. I will remember, after considering God's nature, God's character, Asa said, I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're a God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you've redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And we talked a little bit about this last week, and, and Psalm 77 forces our hand again here this morning. I think this is a beautiful reminder right here in God's word that when we need hope in the present, the psalmist has a prescription for that. What do we do, friends, when we need hope in the here and now? Well, he invites us to look backwards over our shoulder and to recount the faithfulness of God in the past. I love how the old Puritan William Gurnall said it. Grinnell's uh, living in England in the 1600s. This cat's long gone. He's in glory now with Jesus. So he speaks a little bit different, right? 1600s Englishman. I want you to listen to what he says about this biblical principle. When, when you need hope here, now, in the present, you look back over your shoulder and see God's faithfulness then... And gain courage to continue. Grinnell writes it this way. The hound. He's talking about a dog now, right? The hound. When he hath lost his scent. Hunts backwards. And so. Recovers it. Recover. He finds his scent. And then pursues his game. With louder cry than ever. You hear what he's saying? He's saying when the dog, when the, when the bloodhound is tracking an animal and it loses the scent, what's it going to do? He says it turns around and it goes back to where it can find the scent clearly and it picks it up and it's gone like an arrow. Grinnell says, would you learn from the dog? Would you learn from the hound, Christian? When you're struggling to find hope in the here and now, look back, look back to God's faithfulness in the past. And then you can begin to see his character, to see his goodness clearly, even when you remain in the mire to continue with the faith that you need. It's a great picture, isn't it? The hound. It's a great picture of what's happening here with Asaph in Psalm 77. He had lost the scent. He couldn't find God's goodness anymore. He was overwhelmed. And yet he begins to think about the character of God. And then he begins to go beyond his own experience. Isn't this interesting? 
for the rest of the entire psalm, what began as somewhat me-centered, if I can put it that way, God, this is hard. I don't know what to do. Look at my problems. Look at my issues. Look at me, me, me. Not to diminish what he's going through. Then he begins to look at God and to recount his faithfulness of old. And he just gets lost. He gains hope again. And he never comes back to himself. I think this is instructive for us. Look at verses 16 to 19 in particular. This is a poetic and uh, powerful way to describe the exodus. He's, he's writing about the sea. And the water that was, that was split in that cataclysmic moment and, and that classic jailbreak that we covered a few weeks ago. Actually, maybe just last week. Exodus 14 and 15. Listen now. The exodus, the splitting of the Red Sea was four hundred years before Asaph was born. What, what shakes him out of his stupor, his spiritual stupor? Something that happened 400 years ago. God's goodness in the past. One more simple observation and then we'll button this thing up. I want you to look with me just for a moment, side by side, at Asaph's initial questions. There were some, there were some tough questions he was asking of God, weren't they? Where he starts with those questions about God's goodness. And then I want you to look at the closing statement. The way Asaph lands the plane here in Psalm 77. He starts out with the question, is God even there? God, has your love ceased for all time? Are your promises over? Where are you in the world, God? Where are you in my world? He's asking these questions, and yet then he moves once he considers the character of God. Once he looks back and begins to recount God's faithfulness of old. He moves from, God, I'm, sure, I'm not even sure if you're there. I'm not even sure if you're loving. To end his song with the assurance that God is not only there... He is leading. Look at the last verse there. Look at verse 20. He is leading his people like a shepherd, leading them tenderly through the hands of Moses and Aaron. So, if we can just button it up here, what starts out like a tempest of doubt and pain and unrest ends up sounding a whole lot like the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm in a world of hurt, but I'm going to remember because he's good always. Even though I can't see it, I shall not want. He's my shepherd. So, how about you? What are you wrestling with today? Most assuredly, there's something there. I simply want to ask you, as I believe Scripture cues this question up for you, what's your song? What song are you singing? Maybe, maybe your problem is that you didn't know you were allowed to sing a sad song. 
Or you let your circumstances so cloud your brain. Pain, pain has a way, by the way, of clouding your brain. Correct? You've let your circumstances so shroud the goodness of God that you've stopped singing altogether. I want to ask you, what's your song? Because whether you're on the mountaintop singing with joy, there's a lot of those songs in Scripture, or whether you're joining Asaph in the valley of the shadow of death, he's still good. He's still God. And he invites us to sing to him there. Next week, just giving you a sneak peek, we have a beautiful privilege to dedicate two children to the Lord. They're the children of the, jo- the Goschok family, Autumn and Hunter, who we celebrated recently uh, as being adopted by them. After, after years of foster care and very significant medical situations that, uh, that were so significant, in fact, it got them thinking, it, are we going to make it? These were life and death procedures very recently with sweet little Hunter that we were all praying for. And the Goschoks, uh, in preparation for dedicating these two children, which now have their last name, isn't that beautiful? When you get adopted, by the way, that happens. You become part of the family. What a beautiful picture of what's happened for us in the cross. And so little Hunter and Autumn will be up here with the gospel talks. And they're going to share a little bit next week. But, but I thought it would be appropriate to give you just a little preview of, uh, of a song. Because it fits so well with what we're talking about today in Psalm 77. Songs of Lament. Trisha shared with me as she was often driving back and forth. They did a lot of driving with visits uh, to Uniontown back and forth and medical procedures. They spent a lot, of, a lot of windshield time in the car. And they would often play and run back to this one song. It's a, it's a hard song. Or it's, song, it's a song that comes out of hard experiences. You might even call it a song of lament. It's a... Uh, titled Never Once by Matt Redman. Maybe some of you have heard it. I'll just read to you a little bit of the song. Scars and struggles on the way, but with joy. In the middle of the scars and and the struggles, but with joy our hearts can say, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. God, you are faithful and they shared that singing that song gave them hope in the midst of the trial in the midst of the pain I'll let them share with you next week but I want to just let you see a a little bit of that song with some images from the Goschok family here now
Never once did you leave us on our own. God, you are faithful. That's what the Gottschalks were singing in the midst of their storm. Just want to end by asking you, what's, what's your song? He is worth it, friends. To sing in the good times and the bad, he is worth your praise. And I can't think of a better way than to end our service than with the table that we see before us as a reminder of the depths that Jesus took to secure your love. As he went to the cross, Jesus was gathered with his disciples in that upper room. He instituted the, the ordinance of communion, the first supper, the Lord's Supper there that night. And as he left to head out to the garden in Golgotha, he said he sang a hymn. They were singing on the way to the cross. Let's, let's end here today our time of worship with a reminder of where home base is. That because the Son of God, God very God, God the eternal Son, was obedient perfectly to His Father. Because God loved us while we were yet His enemies. He sent Jesus to take upon Himself our sin, our shame, our punishment, and died there. And before He did it, He gave thanks and broke the bread and said, this is my body. And He passed around the cup and He said, this is my blood. Would you do this in remembrance of me? Would you remember when you sit, church, with the elements in your lap that Jesus, the Son of God, man of sorrows, owned the suffering, the shame, the pain, the consequences that you and I deserved so that we could come to Him and stand forever forgiven in right relationship with God. This is Christianity, and this is communion.